0: Conclusion Part Three of the Stones of Venice, Volume Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. The Stones of Venice, Volume Three by John Ruskin. Conclusion Part Three. Now The truly great artist neither leaves the imagination to itself, like Sir Joshua, nor insults it by realisation, like Habima, but finds it continual employment of the happiest kind. Having summoned it by his vigorous first touches, he says to it, Here is a tree for you, and it is to be an oak. Now I know that you can make it green and intricate for yourself, but that is not enough. An oak is not only green and intricate but its leaves have most beautiful and fantastic forms which i am very sure you are not quite able to complete without help so i will draw a cluster or two perfectly for you and then you can go on and do all the other clusters so far so good but the leaves are not enough the oak is to be full of acorns and you may not be quite able to imagine the way they grow "'nor the pretty contrast of their glossy almond-shaped nuts with the chasing of their cups. "'So I will draw a bunch or two of acorns for you, and you can fill up the oak with others like them. "'Good, but that is not enough. "'It is to be a bright day in summer, and all the outside leaves are to be glittering in the sunshine as if their edges were of gold. "'I cannot paint this, but you can.' "'so I will really gild some of the edges nearer to you, "'and you can turn the gold into sunshine "'and cover the tree with it. "'Well done, but this is still not enough. "'The tree is so full-foliaged and so old "'that the woodbirds come in crowds to build there. "'They are singing, two or three "'under the shadow of every bough. "'I cannot show you them all, "'but here is a large one on the outside spray, "'and you can fancy the others inside.' in this way the calls upon the imagination are multiplied as a great painter finishes and from these larger incidents he may proceed into the most minute particulars and lead the companion imagination to the veins in the leaves and the mosses on the trunk and the shadows of the dead leaves upon the grass but always multiplying thoughts or subjects of thought never working for the sake of realization the amount of realization actually reached depending on his space his materials and the nature of the thoughts he wishes to suggest in the sculpture of an oak tree introduced above an adoration of the magi on the tomb of the toge marco d'olfino fourteenth century the sculptor has been content with a few leaves a single acorn and a bird while on the other hand Millet's willow tree with the robin in the background of his ophelia or the foreground of Hunt's Two Gentlemen of Verona, carries the appeal to the imagination into particulars so multiplied and minute that the work nearly reaches realization. But it does not matter how near realization the work may approach in its fullness, or how far off it may remain in its slightness, so long as realization is not the end proposed, but the informing one spirit of the thoughts of another and in the greatness and simplicity of purpose all noble art is alike however slight its means or however perfect from the rudest mosaics of st mark's to the most tender finishing of the Huguenot or the ophelia only observe in this matter that a greater degree of realization is often allowed for the sake of color than would be right without it for there is not any distinction between the artists of the inferior and the nobler schools more definite than this that the first colour for the sake of realisation and the second realise for the sake of colour i hope that in the fifth chapter enough has been said to show the nobility of colour though it is a subject on which i would fain enlarge whenever i approach it for there is none that needs more to be insisted upon chiefly on account of the opposition of the persons who have no eye for colour, and who, being therefore unable to understand that it is just as divine and distinct in its power as music, only infinitely more varied in its harmonies, talk of it as if it were inferior and servile with respect to the other powers of art. Whereas it is so far from being this that whenever it enters it must take the mastery, and whatever else is sacrificed for its sake it at least must be right this is partly the case even with music it is at our choice whether we will accompany a poem with music or not but if we do the music must be right and neither discordant nor inexpressive the goodness and sweetness of the poem cannot save it if the music be harsh or false but if the music be right the poem may be insipid or inharmonious and still saved by the notes to which it is wedded. But this is far more true of colour. If that be wrong, all is wrong. No amount of expression or invention can redeem an ill-coloured picture, while, on the other hand, if the colour be right, there is nothing it will not raise or redeem. And therefore, wherever colour enters at all, anything may be sacrificed to it, and, rather than it should be false or feeble, everything must be sacrificed to it so that when an artist touches color it is the same thing as when a poet takes up a musical instrument he implies in so doing that he is a master up to a certain point of that instrument and can produce sweet sound from it and is able to fit the course and measure of his words to its tones which if he be not able to do he had better not have touched it in like manner to add colour to a drawing is to undertake for the perfection of a visible music, which, if it be false, will utterly and assuredly mar the whole work, if true, proportionately elevate it, according to its power and sweetness. But in no case ought the colour to be added in order to increase the realisation. The drawing or engraving is aught that the imagination needs. To paint the subject merely, to make it more real, is only to insult the imaginative power and to vulgarize the whole. Hence the common, though little understood feeling, among men of ordinary cultivation, that an inferior sketch is always better than a bad painting, although in the latter there may verily be more skill than in the former. For the painter who has presumed to touch color without perfectly understanding it, not for the colour's sake, nor because he loves it, but for the sake of completion merely, has committed two sins against us. He has dulled the imagination by not trusting it far enough, and then, in this languid state, he oppresses it with base and false colour. For all colour that is not lovely is discordant. There is no immediate condition. So, therefore, when it is permitted to enter at all, it must be with a predetermination that, cost what it will, the colour shall be right and lovely.' and I only wish that, in general, it were better understood that a painter's business is to paint primarily, and that all expression and grouping and conceiving, and what else goes to constitute design, are of less importance than colour in a coloured work. And so they were always considered in the noble periods, and sometimes all resemblance to nature whatever, as in painted windows, illuminated manuscripts, and such other work, is sacrificed to the brilliancy of colour, sometimes distinctness to form to its richness. As by Titian, Turner, and Reynolds, and, which is the point on which we are at present insisting, sometimes, in the pursuit of its utmost refinements on the surfaces of objects, an amount of realisation becomes consistent with noble art, which would otherwise be altogether inadmissible, that is to say, which no great mind could otherwise have either produced or enjoyed the extreme finish given by the pre-raphaelites is rendered noble chiefly by their love of colour so then whatever may be the means or whatever the more immediate end of any kind of art all of it that is good agrees in this that it is the expression of one soul talking to another and is precious according to the greatness of the soul that utters it and consider what mighty consequences follow from our acceptance of this truth What a key we have herein given us for the interpretation of the art of all time! For as long as we held art to consist in any high manual skill, or successful imitation of natural objects, or any scientific and legalized manner of performance whatever, it was necessary for us to limit our admiration to narrow periods, and to few men. According to our own knowledge and sympathies, the period chosen might be different and our rest might be in Greek statues, or Dutch landscapes, or Italian madonnas. But, whatever our choice, we were therein captive, barred from all reverence but of our favourite masters, and habitually using the language of contempt towards the whole of the human race, to whom it had not pleased heaven to reveal the arcana of the particular craftsmanship we admired, and who, it might be, had lived their term of seventy years upon the earth and fitted themselves therein for the eternal world without any clear understanding sometimes even with an insolent disregard for the laws of perspective and chiaroscuro but let us once comprehend the holier nature of the art of man and begin to look for the meaning of the spirit however syllabled and the scene is changed and we are changed also those small and dexterous creatures whom once we worshipped those fur capped divinities with sceptres of camel's hair, peering and poring in their one windowed chambers over the minute preciousness of the labored canvas, how are they swept away and crushed into unnoticeable darkness? And in their stead, as the walls of the dismal rooms that enclosed them, and us, are struck by the four winds of heaven and rent away, and as the world opens to our sight, lo! far back into all the depths of time and forth from all the fields that have been sown with human life how the harvest of the dragon's teeth is springing how the companies of the gods are ascending out of the earth the dark stones that have so long been the sepulchres of the thoughts of nations and the forgotten ruins wherein their faith lay charnelled give up the dead that were in them and beneath the egyptian ranks of sultry and silent rock and amidst the dim golden lights of the byzantine dome and out of the confused and cold shadows of the northern cloister behold the multitudinous souls come forth with singing gazing on us with the soft eyes of the newly comprehended sympathy and stretching their white arms to us across the grave in the solemn gladness of everlasting brotherhood the other danger to which it was above said we were primarily exposed under our present circumstances of life is the pursuit of vain pleasure that is to say false pleasure delight which is not indeed delight as knowledge vainly accumulated is not indeed knowledge and this we are exposed to chiefly in the fact of our ceasing to be children for the child does not seek false pleasure its pleasures are true simple and instinctive but the youth is apt to abandon his early and true delight for vanities seeking to be like men and sacrificing his natural and pure enjoyments to his pride in like manner it seems to me that modern civilization sacrifices much pure and true pleasure to various forms of ostentation from which it can receive no fruit consider for a moment what kind of pleasures are open to human nature undiseased passing by the consideration of the pleasures of the higher affections which lie at the root of everything and considering the definite and practical pleasures of daily life there is first the pleasure of doing good the greatest of all only apt to be despised from not being often enough tasted and then i know not in what order to put them nor does it matter the pleasure of gaining knowledge the pleasure of the excitement of imagination and emotion or poetry and passion and lastly the gratification of the senses first of the eye then of the ear and then of the others in their order all these we are apt to make subservient to the desire of praise nor unwisely when the praise sought is god's and the conscience's but if the sacrifice is made for man's admiration and knowledge is only sought for praise Passion repressed or affected for praise, and the arts practiced for praise, we are feeding on the bitterest apples of Sodom, suffering always ten mortifications for one delight. And it seems to me that in the modern civilized world we make such sacrifice doubly, first by laboring for merely ambitious purposes, and secondly, which is the main point in question, by being ashamed of simple pleasures, more especially of the pleasure in sweet color and form a pleasure evidently so necessary to man's perfectness and virtue that the beauty of colour and form has been given lavishly throughout the whole of creation so that it may become the food of all and with such intricacy and subtlety that it may deeply employ the thoughts of all if we refuse to accept the natural delight which the deity has thus provided for us we must either become ascetics or we must seek for some base and guilty pleasures to replace those of paradise which we have denied ourselves. Some years ago, in passing through some of the cells of the Grand Charteurs, noticing that the window of each apartment looked across the little garden of its inhabitant to the wall of the cell opposite, and commanded no other view, I asked the monk beside me why the window was not rather made on the side of the cell whence it would open to the solemn fields of the Alpine Valley. "'We do not come here,' he replied, to look at the mountains the same answer is given practically by the men of this century to every such question only the walls with which they enclose themselves are those of pride not of prayer but in the middle ages it was otherwise not indeed in landscape itself but in the art which can take the place of it in the noble color and form with which they illumined and into which they wrought Every object around them that was in any wise subjected to their power, they obeyed the laws of their inner nature, and found its proper food. The splendor and fantasy even of dress, which in these days we pretend to despise, or in which, if we even indulge, it is only for the sake of vanity, and therefore to our infinite harm, were in those early days studied for love of their true beauty and honorableness, and became one of the main helps to dignity of character and courtesy of bearing look back to what we have been told of the dress of the early venetians that it was so invented that in clothing themselves with it they might clothe themselves also with modesty and honour consider what nobleness of expression there is in the dress of any of the portrait figures of the great times Nay, What perfect beauty, and more than beauty, there is in the folding of the robe round the imagined form even of the saint or of the angel? And then consider whether the grace of vesture be indeed a thing to be despised. We cannot despise it, if we would, and in all our highest poetry and happiest thought we cling to the magnificence which in daily life we disregard. The essence of the modern romance is simply the return of the heart and fancy to the things in which they naturally take pleasure, and half the influence of the best romances, of Ivanhoe, or Marmion, or the Crusaders, or the Lady of the Lake, is completely dependent upon the accessories of armour and costume. Nay, more than this, deprive the Iliad itself of its costume, and consider how much of its power would be lost and that delight and reverence which we feel in and by means of the mere imagination of these accessories the middle ages had in the vision of them the nobleness of dress exercising as i have said a perpetual influence upon character tending in a thousand ways to increase dignity and self-respect and together with grace of gesture to induce serenity of thought i do not mean merely in its magnificence The most splendid time was not the best time. It was still in the thirteenth century, when, as we have seen, simplicity and gorgeousness were justly mingled, and the leathern girdle and clasp of bone were worn, as well as the embroidered mantle, that the manner of dress seems to have been noblest. The chain-mail of the knight, flowing and falling over his form in lapping waves of gloomy strength, was worn under full robes of one colour in the ground. His crest quartered on them, and their borders enriched with subtle illumination. The women wore first a dress close to the form in like manner, and then long and flowing robes, veiling them up to the neck, and delicately embroidered around the hem, the sleeves, and the girdle. The use of plate-armour gradually introduced more fantastic types. The nobleness of the form was lost beneath the steel. The gradually increasing luxury and vanity of the age strove for continual excitement in more quaint and extravagant devices, and in the 15th century dress reached its point of utmost splendor and fancy, being in many cases still exquisitely graceful, but now, in its morbid magnificence, devoid of all wholesome influence on manners. From this point, like architecture, it was rapidly degraded and sank through the buff coat and lace collar and jack-boot to the bag-wig-tailed coat and high-heeled shoes, and so to what it is now. Precisely analogous to this destruction of beauty in dress has been that of beauty in architecture, its color and grace and fancy being gradually sacrificed to the base forms of the Renaissance, exactly as the splendor of chivalry has faded into the paltriness of fashion, and observe the form in which the necessary reaction has taken place necessary for it was not possible that one of the strongest instincts of the human race could be deprived altogether of its natural food exactly in the degree that the architect withdrew from his buildings the sources of delight which in early days they had so richly possessed demanding in accordance with the new principles of taste the banishment of all happy colour and healthy invention in that degree the minds of men began to turn to landscape as their only resource the picturesque school of art rose up to address those capacities of enjoyment for which in sculpture architecture or the higher walks of painting there was employment no more and the shadows of rembrandt and savageness of salvator arrested the admiration which was no longer permitted to be rendered to the gloom or the grotesqueness of the gothic isle And thus the English school of landscape, culminating in Turner, is in reality nothing else than a healthy effort to fill the void which the destruction of Gothic architecture has left. But the void cannot thus be completely filled, no, nor filled in any considerable degree. The art of landscape painting will never become thoroughly interesting or sufficing to the minds of men engaged in active life or concerned principally with practical subjects. The sentiment and imagination necessary to enter fully into the romantic forms of art are chiefly the characteristics of youth, so that nearly all men as they advance in years, and some even from their childhood upwards, must be appealed to, if at all, by a direct and substantial art, brought before their daily observation and connected with their daily interests. No form of art answers these conditions so well as architecture, which as it can receive help from every character of mind in the workman, can address every character of mind in the spectator, forcing itself into notice even in his most languid moments, and possessing this chief and peculiar advantage, that it is the property of all men. Pictures and statues may be jealously withdrawn by their possessors from the public gaze, and to a certain degree their safety requires them to be so withdrawn, but the outsides of our houses belong not so much to us as to the passer-by and whatever cost and pains we bestow upon them though too often arising out of ostentation have at least the effect of benevolence if then considering these things any of my readers should determine according to their means to set themselves to the revival of a healthy school of architecture in england and wish to know in few words how this may be done The answer is clear and simple. First, let us cast out utterly whatever is connected with the Greek, Roman or Renaissance architecture in principle or in form. We have seen above that the whole mass of the architecture founded on Greek and Roman models, which we have been in the habit of building for the last three centuries, is utterly devoid of all life, virtue, honorableness or power of doing good. It is base, unnatural, unfruitful, unenjoyable, and impious, pagan in its origin, proud and unholy in its revival, paralyzed in its old age, yet making prey in its dotage of all the good and living things that were springing around it in their youth, as the dying and desperate king, who had long fenced himself so strongly with the towers of it, is said to have filled his failing veins with the blood of children an architecture invented as it seems to make plagiarists of its architects slaves of its workmen and sybarites of its inhabitants an architecture in which intellect is idle invention impossible but in which all luxury is gratified and all insolence fortified the first thing we have to do is to cast it out and shake the dust of it from our feet for ever Whatever has any connection with the five orders or with any one of the orders, whether it is Doric or Ionic or Tuscan or Corinthian or composite or in any way Greekized or Romanized, whatever betrays the smallest respect for Vitruvian laws or conformity with Palladian work, that we are to endure no more. To cleanse ourselves of these cast clouts and rotten rags is the first thing to be done in the court of our prison. Then to turn our prison into a palace is an easy thing. We have seen above that, exactly in the degree in which Greek and Roman architecture is lifeless, unprofitable, and unchristian, in that same degree our own ancient Gothic is animated, serviceable, and faithful. We have seen that it is flexible to all duty, enduring to all time, instructive to all hearts, honorable and holy in all offices it is capable alike of all lowliness and all dignity fit alike for cottage porch or castle gateway in domestic service familiar in religious sublime simple and playful so that childhood may read it yet clothed with a power that can awe the mightiest and exalt the loftiest of human spirits an architecture that kindles every faculty in its workman and addresses every emotion in its beholder which with every stone that is laid on its solemn walls raises some human heart a step nearer heaven and which from its birth has been incorporated with the existence and in all its form is symbolical of the faith of christianity in this architecture let us henceforward build alike the church the palace and the cottage but chiefly let us use it for our civil and domestic buildings these once ennobled our ecclesiastical work will be exalted together with them. But churches are not the proper scenes for experiments in untried architecture, nor for exhibitions of unaccustomed beauty. It is certain that we must often fail before we can again build a natural and noble Gothic. Let not our temples be the scenes of our failures. It is certain that we must offend many deep-rooted prejudices before ancient Christian architecture can be again received by all of us let not religion be the first source of such offence we shall meet with difficulties in applying gothic architecture to churches which would in no wise affect the design of civil buildings for the most beautiful forms of gothic chapels are not those which are best fitted for protestant worship as it was noticed in the second volume when speaking of the cathedral of torcello it seems not unlikely that as we study either the science of sound or the practice of the early christians we may see reason to place the pulpit generally at the extremity of the apse or chancel an arrangement entirely destructive of the beauty of a gothic church as seen in existing examples and requiring modifications of its design in other parts with which we should be unwise at present to embarrass ourselves besides that the effort to introduce the style exclusively for ecclesiastical purposes excites against it the strong prejudices of many persons who might otherwise be easily enlisted amongst its most ardent advocates i am quite sure for instance that if such noble architecture as has been employed for the interior of the church just built in margaret street had been seen in a civil building it would have decided the question with many men at once whereas at present it will be looked upon with fear and suspicion as the expression of the ecclesiastical principles of a particular party but whether thus regarded or not this church assuredly decides one question conclusively that of our present capability of gothic design it is the first piece of architecture i have seen built in modern days which is free from all signs of timidity or incapacity in general proportion of parts in refinement and piquancy of mouldings above all in force vitality and grace of floral ornament worked in a broad and masculine manner it challenges fearless comparison with the noblest work of any time having done this we may do anything there need be no limits to our hope or our confidence and i believe it to be possible for us not only to equal but far to surpass in some respects any gothic yet seen in northern countries in the introduction of figure sculpture we must indeed for the present remain utterly inferior for we have no figures to study from no architectural sculpture was ever good for anything which did not represent the dress and persons of the people living at the time and our modern dress will not form decorations for spandrels and niches but in floral sculpture we may go far beyond what has yet been done as well as in refinement of inlaid work and general execution for although the glory of gothic architecture is to receive the rudest work it refuses not the best and when once we have been content to admit the handling of the simplest workmen, we shall soon be rewarded by finding many of our simple workmen become cunning ones, and with the help of modern wealth and science we may do things like Giotto's Campanile instead of like our own rude cathedrals, but better than Giotto's Campanile, insomuch as we may adopt the pure and perfect forms of the northern Gothic and work them out with the Italian refinement. It is hardly possible at present to imagine what may be the splendor of buildings designed in the forms of English and French 13th century surface Gothic, and wrought out with the refinement of Italian art in the details, and with a deliberate resolution, since we cannot have finger sculpture, to display in them the beauty of every flower and herb of the English fields, each by each doing as much for every tree that roots itself in our rocks and every blossom that drinks our summer rains as our ancestors did for the oak, the ivy and the rose. Let this be the object of our ambition, and let us begin to approach it, not ambitiously, but in all humility, accepting help from the feeblest hands, and the London of the 19th century may yet become as Venice without her despotism and as Florence without her dispeace. End of Conclusion Part 3 End of The Stones of Venice, Volume 3 By John Ruskin